Welcome to Food Focus, a weekly companion to the Retail Focus podcast. Each show will discuss news, issues, and product releases in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. Welcome to another edition of Food Focus. Trent and Leighton Kling with you on this episode. We'll talk about a recall for Starbucks, Taco Bell marketing to vegetarians, and each of us tries a new variety of chip. But first, we begin with earnings, and we start with the earnings for Restaurant Brands International, released late this week. They own Burger King and Tim Hortons. Expectations were high after surprisingly good first quarter earnings, but in the end, same-store sales for both companies were pretty tepid. Yeah, they are. And this is kind of a theme that we've been talking about for, for a little while now, that restaurant sales overall across all segments are sort of stagnating within the 1% to 2% same-store sales range. Something that I found a solid spot for Restaurant Brands International is the fact that they hit $1.04 billion in revenue, and they actually beat earnings expectations by $0.07. Cents. They hit Earnings of $0.41 cents per share versus the expectations overall from analysts at $0.34 cents per share. So that's not too bad. Again, there are some bright spots here. Comparable sales growth is up to 5.9% in the United States for Tim Hortons during the second quarter. However, their international sector is actually down. The comps were actually at a negative 3.3% year over year for the second quarter. So you're looking at a bright spot for the United States there for Tim Hortons. However, if you look at the Burger King sector of the business, you're seeing the same store sales growth that's actually more comparable to a McDonald's. You're seeing it a little lower at 0.6%. And so I think the expectation here for shareholders and analysts are maybe some new menu options for Burger King and maybe more growth as far as the overall amount of store locations for Tim Hortons, saying that same store sales is more solid here domestically, and they're able to compete with the likes of Dunkin' Donuts a little bit better than a Burger King would. For Burger King, I think the most notable number that many people either holding the stock or just looking at the fast food industry in general, the number that they were looking at was comparable store sales in the U.S. and in North America as a whole. In fact, comparable store sales went down by 0.8% over the second quarter of 2015 in North America. However, this does follow a very strong second quarter of 2015. We saw Burger King and Restaurant Brands International as a whole make a huge leap last year. And Burger King as a brand has really been successful over the last three years. However, they cite certainly competition in this space. And I wouldn't be so sure if slacking sales in North America for Burger King is due in part to just the sheer amount of competition that's out there. We've talked in the past about certain burger chains that are expanding, and in addition, Burger King is facing down competition from McDonald's all-day breakfast. So there's a couple of things to take into account, not only the solid growth last year at Burger King that was probably unsustainable, but in addition, the additional competition that they are seeing in North America. They're not seeing returns on the new outlets that they opened last Last year as they thought they might and in fact they actually closed 15 stores in North America over the last quarter or they had a net store loss I should say of 15 stores over the last quarter 
the same time Burger King is having great success in Europe and Asia. Store openings are continuing at a very rapid pace there. They opened 51 stores in their European region over the last quarter and 46 stores in their Asian region during the last quarter as well. So despite the fact that you're seeing store shrinkage, at least domestically for Burger King, they're managing to open new stores not only in Europe and Asia, but they're also inching into the South American markets as well. When you look at Tim Hortons, there's positive signs here. They actually signed a development contract in Minneapolis. It's the first such development contract they've been able to sign in Minneapolis, which is a natural geographic progression for what was once a Canadian staple that's now kind of gotten established in the upper Midwest as well as the northeastern United States. And as you mentioned, Tim Horton's in great position to compete with others in this space. Overall, same-store sales were up 2.7% at Tim Horton's. But even more notable than this is Tim Horton's kind of pulled a reverse Burger King. Their comp store sales internationally were down 3.3%, but in the U.S. they were up 5.9%. What's the possible future for Tim Hortons in the United States? I really like that 5.9% figure, you know, and if you compare that to their biggest competitor, we can look at, again, a Dunkin' Donuts. This last quarter, you and I had talked about this, Dunkin' Donuts same store sales last quarter rose 0.5%. So if you compare the 5.9% number that Tim Hortons is putting up and compare it to the 0.5%, you can really see that customers like what they see with Tim Hortons and they're happy to go there. They also typically have a drive through location in most of their areas, whereas Dunkin' Donuts doesn't always have that drive through So I think that's a real driver of growth when you're looking at top line revenue. But as you had mentioned, internationally, they're suffering a little bit, but that's not something that Burger King is seeing. They're seeing massive growth internationally, and they've actually grown their store count overall 3.9% year over year for the second quarter. 92 new units, a system-wide sales growth of 5.9%. That 5.9% actually matches the same store sales growth of Tim Horton's domestic growth. So I really like what we see here with Burger King. It's a little bit interesting because it's a well-diversified company, but here you have the dynamic between Burger King and Tim Hortons where they're having a little bit different of a product mix and they're seeing growth in different areas geographically. It's kind of something interesting to look at and really analyze here as we compare these two. And that's one of the reasons or one of the main reasons why everyone recommends to diversify holdings if possible for a parent company. We'll talk about Jack in the Box and Qdoba doing the exact same thing in the next story. But you mentioned Tim Horton's growth domestically. What is it going to take for Burger King to grow domestically? One of the things that they noted was that there's a lot of competition from not only other fast food restaurants like McDonald's with the all-day breakfast and competition from Wendy's, who is still expanding, but also competition from the fast casual burger space and lower grocery prices that are perhaps keeping more people at home and keeping more people from going to Burger King. It seems as though Burger King hasn't had necessarily a notable product release outside of the Mac and Cheetos, which while they did go viral and while they did sell a lot of those units, it doesn't seem to have bled over into some of their other menu items. 
Absolutely not. You see that they did signal continued strength in grilled dogs and successful launches of chicken rings, which is something that is in addition to the Mac and Cheetos that you were talking about. But overall, they are going to have to come up with a hit, something that really resonates with the public and something that they can put out there on social media that they are excited about, something that really does drive sales domestically and not just looking towards the growth they are seeing internationally overall for revenues. I think it's really imperative right now. As you mentioned, the space is a little bit cannibalizing. They've already closed some locations that were underperforming here in the U.S. Now they really have to focus on not only food quality, but some food innovations to boot. When you look at some of the products that they've launched, you mentioned the chicken rings and of course the mac and Cheetos. Those are more novelty items that are on their menu for a limited time. But in terms of actual menu expansion for Burger King, really struggling to find that hit, kind of like Wendy's had in the late 90s with the spicy chicken sandwich. McDonald's has the built-in hit, of course, with all-day breakfast currently and adding the McGriddle to that. The Burger King's got to come up with something that can serve a year-round purpose rather than just hoping to have a novelty food item take off a month out of the year and do that times 12. Well, moving on to Jack in the Box, which owns Qdoba, they released their third quarter earnings after the bell Wednesday and felt no such pain that Restaurant Brands International had felt for their second quarter earnings. Overall, revenues and earnings came in and exceeded expectations, although slightly, but most notably, they posted the strengths really in the net income area. Jack in the Box franchisee run stores, their same store sales were only up 1.5% in the third quarter of fiscal year 2016 that they released earnings for. The system wide growth was 1.1%, in part because the corporate owned stores didn't grow by quite as much as the franchisee run stores did. Despite the fact that the system-wide growth was only 1.1%, their operating margin was able to increase to 22.5%. And the company says, in fact, that it would have been able to increase margins at their jack-in-the-box stores even more because of deflation in packaging and deflation of several main ingredients. But it was offset somewhat by minimum wage hikes, which is a trend that we will see over the next few years as well as facility upgrades. They've got rolling facility upgrades at multiple jack-in-the-box locations throughout the United States currently. Like I said, we're likely to see minimum wage hikes impact their bottom line somewhat over the next few years. But the fact that deflation is taking place for many of their main ingredients, as well as packaging, and in fact deflation in packaging was rather remarkable for jack-in-the-box, that's a positive sign going forward. Additionally, when you're looking at only jack-in-the-box, this is exclusive excluding Qdoba, they're still relatively regional. There's a large portion of the country in large metro areas that do not have jack-in-the-box locations or have very few jack-in-the-box locations. So there is a possibility for expansion. They're eyeing 20 new total locations in fiscal year 2016. When you look at Qdoba, they're eyeing 50 to 60 new Qdoba locations for 2016. However, the operating margin for Qdoba dropped about 80 basis points to 20.6% of sales. Now, this is still better than Chipotle, which has margins of around 8%. And certainly their expansion plans look good. But in terms of competition against Chipotle, even though Chipotle has taken on some negative press of late, it seems like Chipotle Mexican Grill is still winning that battle. I feel as though if you compare the two, Chipotle really does have 
the upper hand here. We talk about margins and trying to compare the two companies, but I think Qdoba will have the benefit in the higher margins long term. However, Chipotle has the brand recognition. And just this year, if you compare their store growth, Chipotle is planning on opening between 200 and 230 locations, a number that really hasn't diminished from last year's plans for their overall growth strategy. And so if you compare that with the 50 to 60 locations that you had mentioned Qdoba is going to try to open for fiscal year 2016, you can see that that's four times the amount of growth. Regardless of margins, I think Chipotle really does have the upper hand, not only as far as overall food quality, but the brand recognition and the consumers really taking advantage of those summer promotions that Chipotle is running out. But I wanted to go back to Jack in the Box and look at their overall mainstay as far as a product offering. Their sandwich segment actually decreased by 0.1% for the comparable period. So that means that their same store sales increasing 1.1% meant that they're actually getting sales from other areas other than the sandwiches. And I think you had pointed out previous to recording this podcast that a large part in that is due to McDonald's all-day breakfast. Jack in the Box for a long time now has had actually all-day breakfast. And so you're starting to see some of those sandwich offerings go by the wayside as competition increases in that segment. I think a lot of people are wanting more and more breakfast options throughout the day, not just in the mornings until 10 or 11 a.m. And you're seeing competition from all arenas, including the Dunkin' Donuts and Tim Hortons that we had discussed previously. The demand for this space is increasingly high, and I think you're going to see that segment dissipate even in the quarters to come. The good news for Jack in the Box is that they are kind of picking up the slack where the sandwiches are decreasing. They've got other specialty items, and of course, it's long been talked about the fact that Jack in the Box offers tacos as a part of their value platform, which is somewhat unusual despite the fact that Burger King tried it for a brief amount of time over the last couple of decades. But the fact that they're able to offer some specialty items, not only things like the taco, but garlic herb fries, for example, and other gourmet-style offerings that really take hold in a lot of their specialty markets, especially on the West Coast. They're also trying to bolster their burger game. Over the last couple of months, they've released different gourmet burgers, gourmet burgers like the Bourbon Steakhouse Burger, for example, that they have up right now. They also had a Butter Steakhouse Burger that they were advertising very heavily over the first few months of summer. So they are trying to to bolster growth in that sandwich area of their business. But the nice thing for Jack in the Box is their menu is so diversified. It's not at all simplified. It is so large that even when something drops out of vogue or they experience competition in one area, they can pick it up in a different area and it seems like they have something to keep customers coming back now the one problem that some analysts did have with the current iteration of jack-in-the-box's menu is the fact that they don't necessarily have a concrete value platform what they do is use coupons that gives franchisees more flexibility it's a model similar to that adopted by Hardee's and Carl's Jr. But then again, you look right now and McDonald's doesn't really have a standard value platform because their McPick 2 isn't consistent from market to market either. So that leaves very few restaurants with that concrete value platform. A business like Taco Bell, for example, comes to mind. And it's going to be difficult for these companies to issue these value platforms in the future because they have a dearth of items that can really be sold for a dollar or less. 
Absolutely. But I think that is going to be a focal point. The value menu is extremely important and any value platform across the fast food industry is going to be looked at as a foot traffic driver. Something that you had mentioned is the fact that franchise locations really might not be able to adjust too well to the different specialty offerings, whether it's in regards to the different value platforms or just the seasonal things that they're trying out at the different locations. But I found it interesting on the quarterly report, company sales actually decreased. Same store sales from corporate owned locations decreased 0.2% year over year, but franchise locations were actually able to take advantage of some of these promotions and roll out some of their own marketing budgets to have an increase of 1.5% in same store sales. And so I think that's really important if you're looking at the pressures that franchisees sometimes face when you're trying to roll out different products for a time period, specialty products, and then the margin cutting value products that are so prominent within the lower demographics they're trying to appeal to. And then as for Qdoba, actually, you're looking at not a lot of different specialty products there. What you see is what you get. And there you see where the company-owned franchises are really exceeding the performance, same-store sales-wise, of the franchisee-owned locations. Company-owned locations there hit same-store sales of 1% versus the franchisee locations of 0.1% year over year. And so I think that's an interesting dynamic to talk about seeing as 82% of the stores overall for Jack in the Box, and this includes Qdoba, are run by franchisees. And if you compare that to McDonald's, where they own about 9% only of their stores, I think it's a little bit interesting of a dynamic to see how they perform versus the franchisee locations. Well, we stay in the fast food sector for our third story. Taco Bell is campaigning now for the vegetarian crowd to come on in with a new blog post that carries the reminder that they have a bevy of American Vegetarian Association certified menu items. And there is, in fact, an entire menu devoted to eating vegetarian or meatless at Taco Bell that they rolled out last October. This has long been the case. And in fact, Taco Bell, if you look at their numbers, they do receive a little bit of a bump comparative to other fast food restaurants around the time of Lent. And that's something we talked about on the Retail Focus podcast, being a driver of both retail choices being made at the supermarket and food consumption choices at fast food restaurants. But more and more, you're starting to see vegetarian diets or meatless diets become in vogue. And if nothing else, certainly meatless Mondays have become more popular over the last two to three years. Yeah, that's right. Taco Bell's really been trying to take advantage of this social media campaign. They have links from this online blog to Facebook and Twitter for those vegetarians that are looking for an alternative for the fast food industry. A lot of people are really forced to cook and eat at home because of their dietary concerns, but this is something that Taco Bell is really trying to take advantage of. Within their blog, they say, being a vegetarian is hard. You typically have to double check the ingredients before you eat anything, and that is true. Most vegans and vegetarians alike are obsessed about the ingredient labels for particular products, and we all know how hard it may be sometimes to go into a fast food restaurant and expect 
expect to see transparency. And so I think this is, again, something they're really proud of. And they have 11 different options that have been approved by the American Vegetarian Association that actually defines vegetarian as allowing the consumption of dairy and eggs, but not any other animal byproduct. As I said, they're very proud of the fact that they have 350 million vegetarian items and they serve about 7% of their overall customer base with these items. And that includes substitutions, of course. They say they're not at all concerned about people asking for substitutions such as beans and rice in substitution for any meat that they have either in their bowls or their burritos. And so this is really a strong thing that I see for Taco Bell. And I'm curious to see how other fast food restaurants are able to respond. One of the unique things for Taco Bell as compared to certain other companies is that it is easier for them to leave out the meat because of the way that they create the food in the kitchen. So if you go to McDonald's, for example, and order a sausage breakfast burrito, you can't really get it without the sausage because in many cases, the ingredients are pre-mixed. However, Taco Bell, of course, adds the ingredients individually to the burrito. So it is very easy to get something like a breakfast soft taco without sausage or without bacon. Additionally, naturally, the type of food they serve, a lot of it is meatless. They have that seven-layer burrito where the protein sources are created by beans and guacamole, and they are very good about substituting anything. And in fact, Taco Bell, it was glossed over by a lot of people because Taco Bell sometimes has a negative rap a little bit in this regard. But it's been the case for over a decade now where you can order any item on the Taco Bell menu fresco style and substitute their fresco salsa in for cheese if you did want to go vegan or even save a couple of calories. They're pretty transparent as far as their ingredients are concerned. And again, that kind of flies in the face of not only common sense, you would think, but also the way they've been portrayed in the press, especially that ordeal about five years ago with their meat, not necessarily being 100% meat and having oatmeal additives and that type of thing. But Meatless Mondays, as I mentioned, is a growing movement. More and more people, at least domestically in the United States, have been doing Meatless Mondays or have been adopting Meatless Mondays, which was actually started in 2003 in partnership with the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. But for Taco Bell, this is kind of one of their first social media pushes to advertise that you can eat vegetarian or meatless on a regular basis at Taco Bell outside of Lent. Absolutely. And I think their estimation of about 7% of the population either tries to be vegetarian or are vegetarian. And so this actually is reflective in their overall sales, where they're claiming that 7% of sales, as I mentioned, come from vegetarian-only cuisine. What I found interesting is the market may actually, in reality, not be that large for the vegetarian segment. A 2010 vegetarian resource group study found that only an estimated 3% of adults and youth here in the United States are fully vegetarian. So as you had mentioned, with the trending meatless Mondays, I think a lot of people look to just a few days a week or a few months out of the year where they try to avoid certain meats. 0.8% of that are claiming to be vegan to where they're more concentrated on staying away from meats for the entire year. And so I find that a little bit interesting. The overall market may not be as big as Taco Bell is hopeful of. Overall, I still see this as a win for Taco Bell, especially if you're comparing them to some of their prominent competitors in this space. 
and I really do applaud their full disclosure with the ingredients here. They also were very open in saying that we cannot guarantee that cross-contact with meat products will not occur within our individual locations, but they are very careful in food preparation and they do their best. And so I feel as though they're making no guarantees here, but they are looking towards a better way to serve their vegetarian customers going forward. Yeah, and 22.3 million people say that they're inclined to go the way of a vegetarian, and even more than that would likely do it if given the ideal circumstances. And of course, this is only counting necessarily vegetarians. You have pescatarians out there that will eat fish in addition to carrying a vegetarian diet. You'll have people that make exceptions for chicken as well as fish. And so that's one of the areas in which Taco Bell can really capitalize, even though there might only be an estimated 3% of adults that are currently fully vegetarian, there's a healthy amount of the market share that would either like to be vegetarian or eat closer to a vegetarian or are partially vegetarian in one way or another. And what Taco Bell can do is make it more convenient for those vegetarians or for the people that are almost vegetarian to eat out and eat at a restaurant. And that's another thing, too, is a lot of vegetarians don't necessarily make a habit of going to eat fast food, going to eat at restaurants. And I think with this ad campaign and this social media push, Taco Bell can maybe bring some of those vegetarians to their stores that were otherwise doing shopping at grocery stores saying, hey, we can get a vegetarian meal in the fast food sector. It is possible. And with a lot of other chains, including burger chains, that's going to be very difficult for them to replicate because Taco Bell has those natural protein sources, as I mentioned, in the form of beans, for example, that a lot of other fast food places just don't have. You can't get beans on a burger at McDonald's or in place of a burger at McDonald's. So, so many of the other fast food restaurants have issues targeting this sector of the population and good on Taco Bell, at least, for initiating that contact with that particular portion of the U.S. population. Yeah, Trent, and as you had mentioned, the social media push is there, and the overall trend for vegetarian cuisine is going up. And so the more they get behind the social media response there, the positivity behind these different campaigns, as you had mentioned, it's only going to create a higher demand for their product. Moving on to the last story for this podcast, Starbucks recalls millions of stainless steel straws after reports of mouth lacerations. Four children have been reported to have been injured from these stainless steel straws that Starbucks had sold between June of 2012 and June of this year. The straws were available three for six dollars and were sold primarily in the U.S., but as we had mentioned, about one-fifth of those sales had occurred in Canada where that one child was injured. So, Trent, Starbucks in the news again. They're always typically a food-focused podcast topic. What do you see here, and how do they react to this situation? In this case, Starbucks has always been a lightning rod for controversy or for making front-page news when there's a recall like this. But in this circumstance, you could maybe see where this is perhaps an overreaction by Starbucks. So there's about 8.5 million total individual straws out there. And yet over the span of four years, four children got hurt. If you were a manufacturer, let's say, of steak knives, you wouldn't figure that you would have to put a warning on a steak knife to say, hey, maybe underage kids shouldn't use this because of risk of lacerations. 
Starbucks has been very forthcoming about the fact, in fact, that children should not be using these straws because they are hard, they're not flexible, and there is the possibility of perhaps cutting the back of their throat or cutting a cheek. Given that only four children got hurt and the injuries vary in terms of severity, it's remarkable that they're deciding to recall all of their straws. I talked to a couple of people this week that actually possessed the straws and I asked them if they were going to bring them back in as a result of the recall and they said no because they enjoy using the straws. They go to the stainless steel Grande and Venti containers that Starbucks sold as a part of their effort towards sustainability and customers use of reusable containers. So I'm not sure that a lot of people are going to heed this recall. This seems more like a PR effort for me. And honestly, this might be an overreaction on the part of Starbucks. I think this is one of those few circumstances where the responsibility probably lies on the consumer here. And when you only have a small portion of people getting hurt, might not be a big enough deal. Absolutely. And I think the proactiveness actually may be warranted considering the Consumer Product Safety Commission is now aware of this ordeal and the fact that they had taken them off the market this last month in preparation for this recall. So I believe this is something that Starbucks has probably been preparing for considering they really didn't want to see any more children potentially get hurt. I think the issue on the actual straws design isn't the tip that you would typically think of with a stainless steel straw. It's actually a, a small crevice that's been made in the straw to slide into the cup's lid for a more secure fit. So I think that's potentially what kids are getting stuck on and, and potentially hurting themselves with. And I think that's something for the overall design that Starbucks is concerned about here in this instance. But as you had mentioned, this isn't the first time they've been in the news. In May, Starbucks actually had recalled its breakfast sandwiches due to a potential listeria outbreak at one of its production facilities. This sandwich was actually tied to the breakfast sandwich there, the prominent sausage, egg, and cheese biscuit. But it was reported that there was no illnesses tied to that recall. So I think if you compare this May incident to this incident with the stainless steel straws, you can see that Starbucks is really trying to be proactive as far as consumer safety to get everyone well informed and be able to be safe without any worry of their products. And now it's time for our final segment on the Food Focus podcast, where we each tell you about an item of food new to the market that we tried out this last week. Leighton, what was yours? Mine was actually a specialty chip that was a one-time special buy at my local Costco location. The brand is Snickety Eat Your Vegetables Chips, and the flavor I had was just the original sea salt. And I got to tell you, it was probably one of the best chips I've ever had. To boot, this chip is actually made with only non-GMO vegetables and grains. It's an excellent source of vitamin A, and it's certified gluten-free. So as many listeners may know, that many chips actually have gluten in them, but this is certified with all grains and non-GMO vegetables. So they were able to have this process here where the chip is able to have the full flavor, but then not have anything bad on the backside of it. No MSG, no GMOs, no cholesterols, no trans fats. You get the idea. So I was really pleased with this. However, I was not pleased with the fact that Costco said it was indeed, in fact, a one-time buy, and I will not be able to be buying the larger bags there again. Luckily, I did a little bit of research, and this particular brand of Snickety Eat Your Vegetables Chips is actually sold at my local Whole Foods. So I'm a little bit stoked about that. However, it is at a, a bit higher of a price point per ounce. 
Some Kroger locations as well have the smaller bags. It's interesting, as I was looking up this chip after you told me you tried them, they're also one of the few chips available at Toys R Us and Babies R Us as well. Well, the item I tried is a limited-time sandwich at Subway. Subway's a business we haven't talked about a whole lot on the Food Focus podcast. They've remained relatively quiet ever since releasing the chicken breast or their new chicken breast earlier in the summer that is prominently featured in many of their advertisements. Of course, the idea is that the chicken breast comes from chickens that were raised without the use of antibiotics. So the sandwich that I ordered actually used this chicken within it. It was the Chicken Caesar Melt. I got a six-inch version of it, and I had them dress it as Subway recommends, which is with provolone cheese, a sprinkling of Parmesan, and then red onions, tomatoes, and spinach as the vegetables on the sandwich. Got it on Italian herb and cheese bread, and it was very good. I will say that there seemed to be a little bit of a lack of chicken on my sandwich. I had four chunks of chicken on the entire six-inch sandwich, But overall, the flavor profile was pretty good. The Caesar dressing didn't necessarily stand out. But at 500 calories, you really can't argue with it too much because a lot of Caesar dressings in and of themselves are very calorically dense. So 500 calories for the entire sandwich, not at all a bad thing. And that was for the sandwich as ordered. While I was at Subway, I noted the four new varieties of Lay's chips that have to do with kind of an international tour. There are multiple flavors, including tzatziki sauce, which is the Greek sauce flavored chip. But the one I got was actually a tikka masala flavored chip. And I don't eat potato chips too often, but tikka masala as a flavoring, and again, that's an Indian inspired flavoring. It's one of my favorite things in the entire world. If there's a restaurant that's serving chicken tikka masala, I will stop there instantly and eat there. And so I tried these Lay's chips thinking that they might fall a little bit short. They were kettle cooked variety. And actually, I've got to tell you, they tasted exactly like tikka masala flavoring should. They were a little bit light on the flavoring. I wish they could have been a little bit more robust, maybe a little bit more turmeric. But other than that, I enjoyed it. And again, I don't eat potato chips often. In fact, maybe two, three times a year. But given that this was one of those occasions, I did enjoy those particular chips from Lay's. And I might actually try one of their other international varieties of chips. Two things I wanted to mention here quickly about your story. To be honest with you, I'm a little happy with Frito-Lay and how they've been able to differentiate their product mix. They're really seeing some high competition from artisan food brands that have brought in a lot of different combinations of chips and flavors on the market. And they've really been trying to stay ahead of the game as far as being able to have those different flavors people like, but then also having baked varieties and those kinds of things that people tend to like more and more with those health conscious crowds. The other thing is, you are right. Typically with a sandwich, you will see the dressings really add to the calorie count. I was just curious, if it's on a scale of 1 to 10, how did you enjoy that sandwich? You said you did enjoy it, but really, how much did you enjoy that Subway sandwich? I would say 6.5 or 7. It's a very good fast food sandwich. Now, that being said, it did carry with it a price point of $5 for the 6-inch sandwich. So it is a little bit on the more expensive side in terms of fast food offerings. But again, with the new chicken that they're using and the fresh ingredients, I think you're paying a premium for at least perceived quality. Would I order it again? I would probably order something else at Subway if I were to go on a regular basis. I was one of those 
those that hit up the $5 footlongs consistently, but it was a very good fast food sandwich, and I actually preferred it to many of the sandwiches I've tried at other popular chains such as Quiznos and Jimmy John's. Well, it sounds like it was a passing grade, so that's all well and good. And I really hope people try those different sandwiches that Subway has to offer. Again, just like with the chips, I would like to see the Subway franchise really trying new things. And it's exciting to see the different brands for the different times of year. Well, that'll do it for us on the Food Focus podcast. A reminder, you can follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus, or you can visit our website, RetailFocusPodcast.com. We'll have our new Retail Focus up next Wednesday, where we discuss branding and design of retail stores with Armin Witt of Under Consideration LLC. We'll also talk a little bit about earnings for natural grocers, as well as the developing story with Walmart possibly seeking to acquire Jet.com. For Leighton, I'm Trent. Have a great seven days, and we'll see you next week. This has been the Food Focus Podcast. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. For more information or for past podcast episodes, visit us online at retailfocuspodcast.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus for news in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Thank you.